from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thanks, Andy, and uh, thank you for coming. Um, today, I'm going to talk about aeromedical aspects of flight simulation. Uh, disclosure, I am an employee, as Andy said, of Virgin Atlantic Airways, and the views expressed are my own and don't necessarily represent my employer. Um, I don't claim to be a technical uh, simulator specialist. I'm an interested user, and I'm looking at this very much from a medical perspective, which actually is quite good news because it means I'm not actually going to be deriving all the complex mathematical formulae and equations of motion that are used in the simulator. So what I'm going to look at today is uh, how the simulator evolved, uh, the various benefits of simulation, some physiological aspects, a bit of a physiology refresher for the doctors amongst you, um, and I'm going to look particularly at the uh, motion, visual, and sound systems. Uh, I'm going to look at what happens when we don't quite get it right, which is uh, uh, a factor in simulator sickness. And then I'm going to look at the uh, various uses of simulators, um, particularly in their role in commercial aviation, as Andy's alluded to, and then also their role in aeromedical decision-making and various research elements. So we really have come a very long way from the early Wright Flyer in 1903 to the latest commercial jet, the 787. And in a very similar way, we've seen parallel advances in the development of the flight simulator. We've moved from the Antoinette-type trainer, where you've got two halves of a barrel here. And these aren't just interested on onlookers. They're actually moving the uh, flight uh, controls, uh, so they're moving the aircraft in response to control inputs from the, uh, the student here. They'd hardly recognise the devices we use today. No discussion of simulation would be complete without a mention of Edwin Albert Link. He was quite an extraordinary individual. Born in 1904, his family moved to New York State in 1910 where his father purchased and ran an organ and piano factory. Ed dropped out of school and started working in the factory. And he got to know uh, basics of pneumatics and engineering, which actually stood him in very good stead in the future. Like many at the time, he became fascinated by flying, and in 1927 obtained his pilot's licence. The following year, he bought his own aircraft and started uh, doing some instructing, some charter flying and barnstorming. (coughs) He found it a very expensive uh, pastime in common with many individuals today and consequently set about designing a a flight training device that can simulate movements of an aircraft, thereby allowing pilots to fly and train both safely and more cheaply. He dubbed this device the Pilot Maker. And this is it. Pitch, roll and yaw movements were initiated by the uh, student's stick and rudder but actuation was achieved by pneumatic bellows that he'd uh, taken from his father's organ factory. He adjusted all this by trial and error until a reasonable facsimile of the feel of the aircraft was, was uh, gained. The effects of the ailerons, rudder and elevator were actually independent, so it didn't really reflect the uh, coordinated interactives, uh, interactions in the aircraft. Subsequently... Uh, he uh, devised some, uh, he installed some instruments which allowed students to start training uh, in instrument flying. And initially, he found very limited market for this device. It actually uh, produced quite a lot of resistance uh, to, uh, for training schools until uh, the uh, Army Air Corps were given the postal uh, 
uh, contract by the US Postal Service. Within the first few weeks of the contract, 12 pilots had died, and it became very evident that they needed to be able to train these people to fly in all conditions in, uh, in greater safety than they currently were doing. At a later stage, he introduced a course plotter, and this is, if, if you like, is the early uh, version of the instructor station. So you had this thing linked to the aircraft, and then an inked wheel uh, moved over the chart so that the instructor could uh, monitor and track and assess the pilot's progress. As a result of this, the, the instructor could see where the aircraft was and could uh, initiate the radio beacons and the appropriate radio communications. The first link trainer was the first simulator to be purchased by an airline, and this was back in 1937 by American Airlines. And it was also purchased by the RAF in the same year. After the war years, there was a development in uh, analog computing, but all the various valves um, made it very difficult to maintain and became very limited as flying became more sophisticated. It was also argued that mo as motion is not used in instrument flying, then the provision of motor cue motion cues was unnecessary, and simulators re largely resorted to a fixed-base model until the 1950s or 60s. Pan Am installed a uh, Stratocruiser stimulator in 1948, but there was no motion or visual systems installed. <clears throat> Manufacturers proposed various motion shift systems, but it really wasn't until the 1950s that the airlines decided to purchase them. After that, we had various digital computer system developments, which really enabled the uh, further advances and refinements in uh, motion and uh, visual systems and sound systems that we actually see today. The modern simulator form that we're familiar with today arrived in around about the 1960s, with the subsequent technical advances used to refine the basic principles established prior to that time. It also became apparent around that time that with different simulators and different manufacturers, some degree of uniformity and standardization would be required. And the Royal Aeronautical, excuse me, the Royal Aeronautical Society Simulator Group was formed in the late 1960s and really played a significant role in bringing together ICAO, the various regulatory authorities and industry users to agree performance and documentation standards for flight simulation. So what are the various benefits of simulated flight? Well, certainly I think the most important one is safety. Up until the 1970s, various uh, manoeuvres such as engine failures were still being uh, trained in the aircraft. In 1956, a Vickers Viscount crashed on takeoff from Blackbush when a trainer inadvertently reduced the thrust on the two starboard en engines. Another Vickers Viscount crashed during engine, uh, simulated engine failure in Manchester in 1969. And then another one in 1977, crashing on landing in uh, Presswick. So there really is a very clear safety benefit to be able to do these manoeuvres in the simulator rather than in flight. There's certainly a financial benefit as well. The costs of operating a simulator versus an actual flight is in the region of 40 to 1. And the purpose of training is to, to cause us... Um, to cause a change in skill. Hopefully that's an improvement um, in another situation that's remote from the training environment. So we're specifically expecting that training in the simulator will tran uh, transfer to the aircraft. There's a lot of things you can do in the simulator that you can't do in real flight. Complex, complex tasks can be broken down into their constituent parts, and each part can be practiced and then put together and practicing the integrated maneuvers at the end. 
you can gradually increase the complexity by adding crosswinds, turbulence, other aircraft and other adverse weather. It's a very efficient way of training as well. Uh, you can use the reset and reposition functions, which will allow multiple approaches in a very short space of time. And it's also useful for students to be able to get effective feedback. This can either be immediate to allow a review of the problem uh, or afterwards. And you can also print out tracks and plots of the uh, tracks flown. In terms of investigation and research, design allows the uh, designers to explore the implications of different design options without the time or expense of building these various prototypes. It also allows an analysis of the handling characteristics and consequences of various non-normal conditions. And one example of this, you may remember some of the issues with the 737 in the early 90s, whereby rudders may experience a sudden uncommanded movement in the opposite direction to which the pilots intended. And at some speeds, the aileron authority was insufficient to counteract this rudder deflection and roll. This was implicated in two crashes in Colorado Springs in 1991 and Pittsburgh in 1994. And the importance of the simulator was that it was used to evaluate recovery techniques for this scenario, which was really very different to other recovery techniques at the time. And then after that, whilst uh, after Boeing redesigned the mechanism, part of the Airworthiness Directive required operators to train their crews and recovery techniques via simulator training. And I'm also going to look at some of the uh, investigative and uh, research issues in uh, aviation and medicine, which we'll look at a little bit later. Certainly with the simulators, they operate in uh, large buildings that are available 24 hours a day. We're not dependent on the weather. We're not dependent on aircraft uh, availability or airspace. And it's always a particular joy to see a 3 a.m. simulator slot rostered. And these days we do also have to include the, uh, the impact the environmental impact of our various activities. So where are we now? At the moment, uh, there are over 1,400 full-flight simulators for commercial aviation worldwide. They're widely accepted by regulators, airlines, and pilots. If you asked a pilot in the 1960s whether they'd be willing to do all their training in a simulator, I suspect the answer would be no. If you ask the reverse now, that you ask pilots if they'd be willing to do their training in the aircraft, I expect the answer would similarly be no. 78% are level D. Now, these are the most sophisticated uh, types of simulators with very rigid specifications for visuals, motion, sound, and response times. And as Andy alluded to earlier, and I will cover this a little bit later, they're capable of zero flight time training. So the pilot's first flight in the aircraft is full of passengers. So I'm now going to look at some of the physiological aspects of simulated flight. And really, in order to understand the physiological stimuli in flight, you need to understand them before you can actually replicate them. So you have the aircraft, and you have the simulator. Sorry. And hopefully the two overlap. Ideally, they overlap to a large degree, and the degree of overlap actually indicates the fidelity of the simulator or how well it actually replicates the aircraft. So how do we actually sense these various stimuli? Well, we use the vestibular system up here, we use the eyes, and we use the various proprioceptive or kinesthetic senses. So that's nerve endings in the skin, Golgi organs in the muscle tendons, and the muscle spindles, and receptors in the joint capsule. 
The brain is then the big processor. It takes all the information from these senses and uh, creates a sense of body position, movement, and acceleration. So hopefully we end up with an accurate sense of where we are, what orientation we're in, and where we're going. So we end up with something like this, rather than something like this. It's useful to look at the various different components and look and see that the sound, motion, and visual systems are really just a small part of the entire thing. We need to have an aerodynamic model, flight instruments, and these are often uh, real instruments uh, that could be interchanged with the aircraft. We need to be able to introduce weather, turbulence, crosswinds, rain and fog. Engine models, which will uh, give an idea of the engine function throughout its uh, full uh, start sequence up to uh, uh, full thrust and any abnormal functions. A navigation system, gear, so that we have gear extension, retraction, flight controls and weather, but these are the three I'm really going to concentrate on today. They're all uh, coordinated by a host computer system, and then the instructor station is, uh, enables the instructor to uh, implement a specific uh, training detail. So in order to replicate these sensory stimuli, we need to determine what they are and where we get this information. So motion information we get from flight instruments, we get them from the windows to the outside world, and we get them from vestibular and proprioceptive functions. Visual information, again, comes with flight instruments in the windows. And sound information, it allows for things like engine noise to be heard or failures such as engine surge or indeed tyre bursts or tyre rumble over lights and runways. And this is a, uh, just a picture of our 747 simulator. So this, in front of the line of reality, this is a complete replica of the flight deck. You've got all the uh, circuit breakers up here, the normal sort of uh, controls and functions here. And then behind this line is where you have the instructor station, and this is where they can put in uh, route details, uh, navigational aids, weather, all this sort of stuff. The only difference in front of the line of reality is, unfortunately, we don't have a big red stop or reset button in the aircraft. And this really allows the uh, simulator to be reset and the motion platform returned to a neutral position in the event of any malfunction. So what motion cues do we actually uh, receive in, in flight? An aircraft can move in any direction. It's completely unconstrained. But you can actually break this down into six axes. And there's three angular uh, accelerations and three linear, most of which you will be familiar with. That's pitch, roll, yaw, and the linear acceleration is heave, sway, and surge in simulator terminology. So the modern simulator motion platform, this is also known as the Stewart platform, is, uh, was invented in 1965. And it's got six independently operated hydraulic actuators, and they're arranged in uh, three groups. So two pairs here, pairing with different ones up here. The motion looks something like this. And you're actually moving uh, these days from hydraulic actuation to electrical, electrical systems. But you can see from this uh, uh, little film that actually the motion of the platform is actually quite limited. So how do we actually manage to simulate the unconstrained motion of an aircraft in flight from a limited range of movements on this platform? And this is where an understanding of human physiology 
and its limitations come into force. And we can use effectively undetectable, undetectable movements and substitute different movements to provide an impression of this unconstrained motion. So, uh, vestibular system, just looking at that a little bit more detail, you have three semicircular canals arranged at 90 degrees. And they're going to be able to uh, give you the sense of pitch, roll, and yaw. The threshold for these semicircular canals is around about 0.5 metres per second squared, and that's important, as we shall see in a minute. The semicircular canals are attached to the skull and then filled with endolymph fluid. Within the ampulla of each semicircular canal, and that's this sort of swelling bit here, uh, it lies, uh, lies the cupula. When an angular acceleration is sensed, the endolymph starts to move, and you can see it bends the hair cells here, and that causes the, uh, the nerve fibre to uh, receive um, uh, nerve signals. If this turn is maintained at a constant rate, then eventually the fluid and the tube are moving at the same rate, so it straightens up again, so you lose that, that nerve, um, nerve signal. And under laboratory conditions, it's been shown that the acceleration can't be detected below a threshold of about 0.12 and 4 degrees per second. But looking at simulator studies, they've shown the threshold value of uh, anything less than 0.5 degrees per second squared uh, is, is the threshold for uh, pitch and yaw in simulator studies. So the upshot of this is that angular, angular velocities can't be detected in the simulator, simulator below this level. Just looking at the uh, linear, acceleration, um, linear acceleration uh, receptors, the utricle and saccule, and they work in a very similar way to the semicircular canals, that you have these hair cells embedded in a gelatinous matrix, and then accelerations or head tilt causes these to bend and uh, causes the nerve to be stimulated. Linear acceleration detected by these otolith organs uh, is uh, the threshold is around about 0.01 g or 0.1 meters per second squared. So, in order to compensate for the limited platform moment uh, motion, what we do is replicate the initial acceleration very closely to what is uh, produced in flight. But before the platform reaches the limit of the travel, you actually apply a sub-threshold motion, so it's less than that 0.5 metres per second squared, in order to prevent the platform reaching its limit. This returns the platform to the neutral position without the pilot being aware of it, and therefore that change in acceleration vector is undetectable. And it allows the platform to be ready for the next acceleration to be applied. So if you want to replicate a longitudinal acceleration such as takeoff, bearing in mind that the linear acceleration threshold is about 0.1 metres per second squared, if you apply a sub-threshold pitch-up acceleration to the motion platform, then the gravitational, uh, gravitational vector is rotated. So instead, if it was flat, it would normally be there, but it's rotated, so it's now down there. It continues uh, pointing to the vertical, but you've pitched it up at an undetectable level to the pilot. At the same time, the visual display doesn't change, so the eyes are stabilised by both the outside view and the instruments, and you sense pressure on your back because of the tilt-up. So this rotation of the gravity uh, vector is interpreted as a linear acceleration, and for a deceleration, it's the exact reverse. 
So you get a sub-threshold pitch down, and when you combine that with a stabilised visual view and a sensation of being pushed forward in the harness, rotation of the gravitational vector is uh, interpreted as a longitudinal deceleration. Moving on now to the visual systems. The first visual systems which came into widespread use was the model board. And what you can see here is a scale model of the area to be overflown, and then that's viewed by a camera on this gantry. And you can see the size of it compared with this individual down here. The mobile gantry moved in response to uh, the aircraft's flight path. Now, there were a few problems with this, as you might imagine. You could actually fly off the edge of the model board. If you crashed, it might require reconstruction of part of the board. And they also provided an opportunity for practical jokers who had applied models of insects or dinosaurs amongst, <laughs> amongst the scenery to distract the unsuspecting trainee. Nowadays, visual systems are computer-generated and driven largely in response to progress made in the entertainment industry. And the earliest techniques were actually uh, driven by the NASA space program. And there's a picture here. I suspect someone's probably just had a little crash there because you can see this chap is reconstructing the model board. So how do we actually receive all these visual stimuli in flight? Well, we look at near, intermediate, and distant uh, vision. The field of vision, uh, a human field of vision, is 90 degrees either side horizontally. It's about 50 degrees above and about 70 degrees below. In terms, of in terms of resolution, the greatest uh, uh, accuracy and acuity is around about the fovea, uh, near the centre of the retina, and it reduces quite markedly towards the periphery, such that right at the edges only uh, motion is detected. In terms of depth perception, we actually automatically use a, a huge variety of available depth cues to determine the distance between objects. Uh, you have ocular motor cues, and these are cues based on the ability to sense the position of our eyes and the tension in our eye muscles. Monocular cues, which work with one eye, and these examples include retinal image size, so that closer objects make larger images on the retina, linear perspective or convergence, so that parallel lines appear to converge in the distance, texture gradient, so that we see much more detail in closer objects. Occlusion, where one object is partially uh, hidden by another, it's considered to be further away. An atmospheric perspective, this is where objects that are further away appear to be a little hazy. Shades and shadows, and this is still something we haven't done a great uh, uh, amount of progress on in the simulator, where brighter objects are closer in, and you can also work out relative position using shadow if you know the light source. And then you have motion parallax as well, whereby nearby, nearby objects tend to cross the retinal image uh, the retinal image plane faster than the distant ones, which seem to be more stationary. In terms of binocular cues, this really depends on the image from both eyes. Each eye sees a slightly different view of the world, and whilst the overlap is substantial, we can actually use that disparity to perceive depth, and that's known as stereopsis. So if the object is far away, the disparity of the two images... Uh, falling on both retinas, uh, will actually be pretty small. But if the object is close or nearby, then the disparity will be much larger. In terms of motion, uh, points in the scene moving towards the edge of the display gives a sense of motion. And then also changes in size and detail of an object 
give, uh, give information about motion in terms of uh, speed and direction. In a, way, in a similar way to stereopsis, the view from both pilot seats is slightly different as you're sitting a few, uh, few um, a metre or two away. And you, what you don't want is to have completely different views for each pilot. So you need to be able to find a way to integrate the view so that you can see a similar, it's not going to be identical, but a similar, similar view from both pilot seats. And then we also need to uh, consider the effects of weather, things like haze and fog. So the current uh, common uh, display method is uh, called a cross-cockpit collimated display. And essentially what you have is the projectors mounted... The projectors mounted up on the, uh, the red thing there, so that's actually above the crew uh, compartment. And then the beams are directed down towards a back-projected sc- screen... They're then reflected onto a collimating mirror. And in fact, actually, it says mirror here, but a lot of the common um, uh, methods of doing that are actually with a plastic uh, screen and a reflective surface. surface. And that clearly uh, reduces weight in the simulator. And then from the collimating mirror, it actually gets reflected. It's actually getting reflected into the uh, crew compartment here. So that's the uh, pilot eye position there. And you can see this, uh, the display that is uh, being projected. So today, the um, developments, as I said, have really been uh, driven by the entertainment industry. And most of the images are now computer-generated, which gives a huge amount of flexibility. Instead of using charts and photographs to accumulate data, we can now use satellite data to develop our 3D terrain databases. The image is uh, refreshed or changed 50 to 60 hertz. That's 50 to 60 times per second. The image in the visual system is being redrawn. We can now get up to 220 degree uh, view, 220 degrees field of vision, which is really important when you're doing a visual approach, you're in the simulator, and you're doing a downwind, so you've got the uh, runway to one side, you extend beyond the runway, and you need to be able to look back and see the threshold of the runway to make that visual approach. It's got to provide sufficient level of detail, and it's been calculated as about a million objects in a standard airport scene. And it must also provide a continuously changing scene. It's not been, it wasn't terribly easy to get some uh, pictures of the graphics, but these are pictures I took in our, in our simulator. So hopefully I can convince you that um, to get some uh, monocular depth cues, you've got these objects here. They look further away because they're really small. You've got an example of convergence on the taxiway here. Perhaps I can convince you about texturing so you can see a lot more detail in these uh, markings here compared with further away. And then maybe a little bit of atmospheric perspective. Maybe I can convince you they're a little bit hazier because they're further away. So how do we replicate these visual cues in the simulator? To an individual, it doesn't matter whether the pilot's moving towards the runway at 150 knots or the runway is moving towards the pilot at 150 knots. Usually it's the former case in the aircraft. But what you can do is you can actually fool the brain and have the uh, stationary pilot in the simulator and give that uh, impression of motion as the runway is moving towards the pilot rather than the other way around. As you're moving towards an object, the points in the scene move outwards towards the edges, and this is known as optical streaming. And again, I've mentioned the texture gradient as well. As an object comes towards you, you can see a lot more uh, of the detail. 
So, for example, a runway from a distance, it looks pretty uniform uh, area of concrete, but as you get close, you can make out the various markings, variations in colour and texture, and usually a bit of rubber on the runway. A sound is really of quite limited importance in determining orientation, but it's actually very effective in building up a comprehensive picture of the aircraft position or flight path over the radio. So the sort of sounds we need to uh, be able to replicate on the ground, tyre squeal, bit of ground runway, ground rumble as the uh, tyres pass over the runway lights. Engines start, so you should be able to hear the different uh, sounds of the start sequence and then uh, engine reverses. In flight, you get a huge amount of information from airflow over the uh, cockpit, um, and it's actually quite a good uh, uh, speed cue as well. You need to be able to replicate gear extension and retraction. Engines, as I've already mentioned, need to be for the full range before start, and then uh, also you need to be able to replicate navigational airs, air conditioning functions, radio and air traffic control. We also need to be able to uh, replicate all the non-normal sounds that we hear. And examples of this would include engine surge, stall and failure and various system warnings. And the important thing about noise is that it does actually add to the workload. It's quite a big distractor, so it's important to incorporate this into any training programme. So how do we actually go about this in the simulator? Well, it's fairly easy these days. We can analyse the source of the sounds and generate the appropriate waveform. And then we can validate them against proper aircraft sounds uh, using Fourier spectral analysis. And it actually provides a pretty accurate representation of the cumulative sounds. And then you have in the simulator, you have a number of speakers to allow or prevent point source of uh, the sound stimulus. So how do we actually then integrate all those systems together? We need to, as we've uh, understood the uh, various stimuli, we need to replicate them. We need to make sure that the response, the lag of the response of the simulator is kept to an absolute minimum. So you can have a maximum difference between a control being input and the response to the simulator of 150 milliseconds for a category D simulator. It's important to make sure that acceleration is sensed before any visual cues because if it's wrong it could be fairly unpleasant. Simulator sickness is a form of motion sickness caused by various unfamiliar motion stimuli. And it doesn't actually matter whether the motion is real or apparent. And typically in the, in the simulator, the case is visual motion without bodily motion. Symptoms are typical of other forms of motion sickness, typically the stomach awareness, uh, the uh, nausea, vomiting, pallor and sweating. Visual symptoms can include blurred vision, eye strain, and difficulty in focusing. And then after exposure, uh, you can get various symptoms which can last up to 12 hours. And this may, of course, cause difficulties if a pilot is rostered to fly shortly after a sim session. And initial reports of this were actually uh, derived from fixed-based simulators with poor visual cueing. And it's actually very well recognised in many types of simulator with a variety of different motion and visual cues. So what is the cause of this? Well, it's basically a mismatch between the uh, various visual and vestibular cues. So, for example, if the visual scene changes without the expected vestibular sensations, seen, for example, during reposition, where the visual scene may change from motion in the air 
to stationary on the ground in a matter of seconds. But you don't get those normal vestibular stimulations either. Then the sensation seems to be worse uh, if it's an extreme of motion. For example, if, if you have a go-round and the sim is repositioned at the, uh, the height of pitch there. It's interesting that pilots who are highly experienced in the aircraft uh, are far more susceptible to those whose experience is limited, really suggesting that familiarity with the aircraft and poor simulator fidelity are significant factors here. The other time you can get it is when the visual and the motion stimuli are mistimed. So, as I said, acceleration in flight is normally a sense ahead of the visual cues. If it's the wrong way around in the simulator, that's actually very unpleasant. Management, well, closing your eyes actually is quite effective, but that's really not always um, suitable. Um, but if you are in a reposition and the instructor has control of the, uh, the simulator, a good instructor will say, close your eyes, so you can actually prevent that, that stimulus being felt. And then, of course, as with any motion sickness, adaptation is um, an appropriate management. So that's repeated and maintained exposure. So you get some degree of familiarity. <coughs> so I'm going to move on and have a look at uh, the use of simulators in commercial aviation. So what do we actually use them for? Well, I think it's important to stress they really are just a single component of an entire pilot training program. And other uh, forms of learning and teaching we undergo include computer-based training. That's typically for ground school um, and learning about the technical systems of an aircraft. Various lectures, presentations, chalk and talk. Discussion groups are useful, particularly when you have different uh, groups of workers, for example, crew resource management discussed uh, between cabin crew and pilots. And then procedure training. It's not necessary if you're just learning specific drills to actually do these in a full flight simulator. So now we actually have simulators were developed to reduce the cost of um, flying, and we've now got simulators to simulate the simulators to, again, reduce the cost. And this is where the part-task trainers come in. We have multifunction training devices where you have accurate replication of uh, switches and dials, and you can sit there and you can just get the position of where these controls and levers are. If you're training on a flight management computer, that can take some time if you're not familiar with it, but it's not necessary to have a full flight simulator to do that. So you can just literally have an FMC trainer. And then again, if you're just learning checklists and you're looking at some responses and position of things, you can actually use something called a cardboard bomber, which is just literally a picture of the controls placed in the appropriate places. Fixed-based simulators are, are, are still used um, every now and again. It's cheaper to have a fixed-based simulator. Even a full-flight simulator with the motion switched off, it's actually cheaper to do that. So again, if you're just doing checks and drills, there's no particular value in having a full-flight sim. And then, of course, we come on to the full-flight simulator. And uh, you know, that is uh, really one of the more complex parts of the program. So the, thing, the things that a full-flight simulator is useful these days are type conversions. So, for example, when you're training on a new aircraft type. Zero-flight time training. As Andy alluded to earlier, this is where all the training is completed in the simulator and the first flight in the aircraft is completed with revenue passengers on board. The licensed proficiency check 
is when the license is revalidated. We do that every 12 months. They're used for pilot selection and recruitment, whether you're training or selecting uh, ab initio people or whether you're actually choosing to uh, change employers. They're used for pilot development to allow training and practice of crew resource management and various decision-making skills. And some airlines also undertake further selection procedures on first officers in order to determine their eligibility for promotion to captain. Route familiarisation has been made possible by the advances in sim uh, simulator visual image generation. And particularly in uh, long-haul carriers, it can sometimes be quite hard to maintain uh, landing recency and meet the regulatory requirements for takeoffs and landings in a certain period of time. So a quick trip to the simulator for three circuits and landings is something uh, that uh, occasionally we have to do. So I've tried to see this in the context of medical appraisal and revalidation. And instead of an annual appraisal and a five-year re revalidation, we go through this um, every six months. We have two days of simulated training and assessment. Every year we have a line check, which is an assessed line flight. We have a technical ground training and exam, security and emergency procedures and an exam, dangerous good trainings and an exam, crew resource management training, aviation medicine training, which uh, these days is fairly limited, and then, of course, we have to undergo medical certification. More recently, um, the Alternative Training and Qualification Programme, or ATQP, has been introduced, and I have to say this has been a, a great, um, great step forward. Before this was introduced, every airline, every operator had to do the same things in a simulator check. It was a bit like one size fits nobody. And this allows, uh, on the basis of evidence, uh, looking at uh, instance within the fleet or worldwide on the aircraft type, we can look at instance, train for those. We can do a trend analysis. If anything's happening on the fleet, if there's a trend for, for example, long landings, we can uh, you know, practice that. But it involves a huge amount of data collection and then looking at that and incorporating those elements into the training program. But it is great, from, from our perspective, we can actually train what we need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. As a result of that, we have an alternate operator proficiency check and then a line-orientated uh, flight training session every six months. And a loss session is essentially um, a scenario uh, conducted in real time where various things go, long, go wrong. And then instead of an annual line check, we are reduced to a line check every two years. So what do we actually do in our simulator checks? Well, there are various regulatory and company requirements. There's quite a bit of checking. For example, normal procedures such as low visibility procedures and uh, navigational procedures. And then, of, of course, we do uh, various non-normal procedures or emergency procedures. One or two engine and operatives, normally only the two engine operatives in a four-engine aircraft, various emergency drills. And then there's also quite a bit of training as well in these sessions. We look at existing or possibly new procedures. And then there's been a particular emphasis on upset recovery, particularly since the Air France and Colgan incidents in the last few years. We've also moved from scenario-based training to competency-based training, based on the principle that it's no longer possible to predict every situation in which that aircraft will find itself. So if you train for the competence rather than scenario, then that should provide a better quality of training. So how are they all assessed? 
One example of an assessment process is looking at teamwork management and the operation of the flight. And these are the sort of things that, are looking, that we're looking, we'll look for in each of those criteria. And a lot of these are actually further broken down by examples of the uh, behaviour if that competency is mastered. We're assessed both as an individual and also as a crew. And this is a quote from my captain the other week when I was talking about this and how stressful simulators can be. And his response was, well, everything is on the line. It's your job, it's your licence, it's your reputation. So having looked now at their uses in aviation medicine, they're absolutely fundamental to aeromedical decision-making. They're used in medical flight tests. They've been used in medical research and also to look at uh, passengers and uh, improving their fear of flying. And this is one of the... uh, This is probably the most important paper for aeromedical decision-making, where Peter Chapman undertook a study of 1,300 simulated incapacitations in routine simulator checks. There were, um, they introduced subtle and complete incapacitation, and this may or may not have been at the same time as additional system failures. And between the training captains, they agreed to assess the risk of the aircraft, and they agreed these criteria to be nil, slight, serious, and a crash. They looked at which pilot was incapacitated, the phase of the flight, the time taken to identify the incapacitation. And this was the results. The complicated was where, inadvertently, the incapacitation occurred at the same time as some other system failure. The uncomplicated was uh, uh, uncomplicated. And the important figure is here. So out of 800 simulated incapacitations, only two of those resulted in a crash. So 0.25% of incapacitations resulted in a fatal accident. And this is really the basis of the 1% rule. And don't worry, I'm not going to go to, through all this completely. After the Staines crash in 1972, it was decided that the more objective uh, stance needed to be taken in uh, objective risk assessments in aviation medicine. And it's already been proposed that uh, an acceptable all-cause failure rate in aviation was considered to be in 1 in 10 to the 7 flying hours, i.e. 1 in 10 million flying hours. And in, 19, in the early 1970s, it was suggested this should be equally applicable to a pilot um, in a presentation of the Aerospace Medical Association. The UK CAA took up this uh, idea in the early 80s. So if one in 10 to the 7 flying hours was considered an acceptable cause, uh, acceptable all-cause failure rate, then pilots should be considered as one of the aircraft systems, and no system should contribute more than 10%. Pilot failure should therefore be no more than 1 in 10 to the 8 flying hours. Medical incapacitation should be no more than 10% of the total pilot failure rate, i.e. 1 in 10 to the 9. Unfortunately, 1 in 10 to 9 is uh, an incapacitation risk that is simply not achievable in most uh, European individuals from a cardiovascular perspective. And this is really where Peter Chapman's paper came in having showed that only two out of 800 simulated cases of incapacitation in flight resulted in a fatal accident. And then given that this was considered to be the worst-case scenario, 
it was assumed that the second pilot was able to take control at a critical phase of flight in 99% of cases, thereby reducing the risk of a fatal accident by a factor of 100. Further assumptions included that a typical flight lasted one hour, the critical phase of flight comprised just 10% of this time, and the second pilot took over in all cases outside the critical phase of flight. If you follow that through, then it meant that only 10% of incapacitation events occurred at a critical phase of flight, and only 100 cases resulted in a fatal accident, as the other pilot safely took control in 99% of cases. Therefore, only one in a 1,000 incapacitations would result in a fatal accident. So with a target incapacitation risk of 1 in 10 to the 9, this is reduced to 1 in 10 to the 6 by the present presence of a second pilot. If you then work out the hours per year, this equates to risk of 1% per year. And this really is a cornerstone in the aviation medicine decision-making. Simulators are commonly used for medical flight tests, and this really is a functional occupational assessment. Are you fit? Are you capable of doing the job? And it can be considered for a variety of medical conditions and medications. The test requirements are specific to the condition. They're conducted by a TRE, a type rating examiner, or a training captain, so they're not medically qualified. So most of the medical flight tests include a comprehensive uh, set of instructions and information to the training captain so they know what to look out for. Results then go for assessment at the uh, CA, Authority Medical Section. And the reason we can carry these out in the simulator is that, as we've demonstrated, they have good fidelity and transfer. The cost is much less, and also the safety benefit as well. So these are the sort of conditions that uh, you can do a medical flight test for. Functional hearing assessment is by far and away the commonest type of medical flight test. And 1,528 were conducted in a five-year period, which works out around about 305 per year. And that, uh, pilots are eligible to undertake a medical, uh, functional hearing assessment if they pass the speech discrimination but haven't passed the audiogram um, requirement. It can also be used if you're starting to use hearing aids for the first time. And there's a window of six months. They can be done either three months before or three months, three months after the medical uh, examination. So you've got a six-month window in which time most commercial pilots would have been in the simulator at some stage. It can be done in the simulator. As we've discussed, the sound systems do provide a, a reasonable uh, estimation, approximation of um, sound experienced in flight. Or it can clearly be done on a line check as well. And the pass rate is currently high. It's about 99.9%. In the time, in the three years, um, sorry, in the five-year period there, there were uh, just two abnormal uh, tests. And this is the form that's given to the uh, um, training captains. So can they hear effectively and adequately throughout all phases of flight? Can they communicate effectively with other crew members and air traffic controllers? And particularly when non-standard terminology is used, that's often easily... Um, uh, you can easily be thrown by non-standard terminology. And it also allows for any flight safety concerns to be raised. Musculoskeletal, any physical disability, and actually uh, obesity as well. So if someone's uh, uh, BMI body mass index is uh, 35 or greater, they have to do a medical flight test. And the critical things then are, are these individuals able to reach all the controls? Are they able to do all the uh, preparation for flight? 
all the flight manoeuvres, operate all switches, levers, controls. In the event of emergency, uh, can they carry out all the required emergency drills? And can they also evacuate the, the uh, aircraft safely? And with commercial pilots, that also includes, can they assist passengers with the evacuation as well? It's been possible to gain a Class 1 medical certificate with diabetes since uh, September 2012, so that's just over three years. And this allows uh, potentially hyperglycemic agents to be used whilst flying. Insulin, the glynides, and sulfonylureas, those are the sort of slightly high risk of uh, hyperglycemia, and these ones are considered rather, more, rather less um, risk of hyperglycemia. 40 medical flight tests have been conducted in the last uh, three years. And the protocol really does impose quite a rigorous in-flight testing and monitoring regime on the diabetic pilot, but also involves the other pilots as well in terms of briefing and monitoring of the diabetic individual. And there does seem to be some dis discussion about the value of, the fl of flight uh, versus simulator assessment of this. And one example is the use of insulin pumps. It's not possible yet to replicate the uh, reduction in barometric pressure in the simulator. So uh, in flight, you've got to tap out bubbles in the tubing. You can't replicate that in the simulator. So there is certainly some value in possibly doing these tests in flight rather than in the simulator. And again, this is, an this is the um, uh, form that is, uh, needs to be uh, completed by the uh, examiner. It lists the blood testing machine. That has to be a specific type of machine that's uh, uh, properly calibrated and recognised. Um, they've got to uh, go through the briefing with the other crew member, check that everything is correctly recorded, and ensure that flight safety is not compromised. It also looks at contingency uh, circumstances. So, for example, spare uh, kit, spare uh, uh, glucose meters, a glucose supply in case of hyperglycemia, the stowage and disposal of equipment, and this would include, of course, clinical waste. It's been possible to uh, fly on depression medication since 2012. Now, this assumes that the, uh, the pilot has recovered from the um, depression symptoms, and they've got to be stable with no symptoms for a minimum of four weeks. And the issue here is really the side effects of the medication. And although these are generally mild and self-limiting, I'm sure you'd agree you probably don't want too many of those in your pilot. So after the uh, symptoms have resolved, they can undertake a medical flight test to ensure that there's no medication-related side effects. And so far, so in two years, 19 simulator assessments have been done, and those have all been satisfactory. And again, this just summarises for the training captain the requirements of the medical flight test. Various neurological conditions will require uh, a medical flight test too. Um, there are criteria for a severe or very uh, severe head injury, and those are, for example, loss of consciousness for more than 24 hours, post-traumatic amnesia uh, for more than 24 hours, any neurological deficit, um, and then various uh, appearances on MRI. Pilots suffering from HIV, they should undertake a baseline, neuro, ne baseline neuropsychological assessment. Um, and those tests should uh, assess timed psychomotor tasks, various memory tasks which require attention, learned and active monitoring or retrieval of information, all hugely relevant for the pilot. 
These baseline tests can be used as a future comparator. A future comparator. And then for uh, spinal or nerve injury, again, this can be assessed in the, um, in the simulator. Eyesight, if the eyesight doesn't meet the standard, and we're looking at particularly sort of monocular pilots or, or those who have, for example, double vision on, on particular axes of, uh, of uh, sight, they can uh, also undergo a medical flight test. And as we've discussed, the binocular cues, i.e. those requiring two eyes to see, are far outnumbered by the monocular cues. And after a period of adaptation, you can actually find commercial pilots can get back in the simulator and relatively quickly learn to compensate uh, with those monocular cues for the defective binocular vision. They've also been used for uh, medical research. And these are great for uh, conditions that you really don't want to replicate in flight. Effects of fatigue, effects of alcohol. And in the 1970s, they even did a test uh, with the effects of uh, cannabis. Um, the research me measurements, um, if they're undesirable or burdensome, again, that's better to do in the simulator rather than the aircraft. And it also allows for a standardization of, of protocols as well. So no lecture these days uh, from a pilot is, um, is complete without some mention of fatigue. And uh, just uh, earlier this year, Washington uh, State University undertook a simulator study to look at the fatigue associated with multi-sector days versus the same length but a single-sector day. And what they found was, um, well, they actually uh, took 24 pilots. They had a four-day protocol, so they're able to replicate the same flights for each set of pilots. And they basically did a multi-sector day on day two and a single-sector day of the same length on day three. And they showed that a moderate increase uh, with fatigue was experienced on the multiple sector days, although this didn't actually impact on performance. It was also noted they tended to have a higher alertness level than other night shift workers. So that's one example of fatigue research carried out in a simulator. I don't think you really get ethical approval to do this anymore. <laughs> but um, these chats, and it was the 1970s, I suppose, um, they took 10 pilots, um, many of whom were actually uh, professional pilots who were social cannabis smokers. And they did a randomised double-blind crossover study. Um, and they did... Uh, so they either smoked placebo or cannabis, and they took the measurements before and 30 minutes after smoking. What they did was they, they subjected these chaps to four consecutive four-minute holding patterns. So it's a 16-minute... Um, uh, assessment uh, with increasing difficulty. And funnily enough, altitude keeping, heading keeping was significantly worse and there were far more major and minor errors. Alcohol. Not something you really want to do in flight either. But these guys looked at 28 pilots. They had a target peak blood alcohol concentration of 0.08%. And then they subjected them to a simulator scenario. They looked at pre-intoxication, uh, acute intoxication, and then eight, eight hours after uh, the drink. And they, they found that cockpit monitoring was impaired, but this recovered at eight hours. However, communication was impaired, and there was no recovery at eight hours. And can simulator be helpful for passengers? There's a huge uh, number of people who are actually pretty uh, scared of flying. 2.5% have a specific phobia, and 15%, up to 15% of the population avoid flying. Up to 30% feel anxious. 
So if you look at uh, the UK population, that translates to about 1.5 million people who have a specific phobia, 9 million avoid flying, and 27 million feel anxious. And this actually applies to people of all backgrounds. And for some reason, women are more likely to permit it than men. It's quite common to have fear of flying co- uh, training courses, and these usually consist of a ground-based session involving psychologies, uh, psychologists, pilots, and cabin safety specialists. And then they're followed by an actual flight. And just look at the numbers on the website, about 4,000 people per year do this, just with BA and Virgin. It's expensive. It's around about £300 for the day. So is there a role for the simulator? And it would appear to be so. This is a 2015 study, and this uh, group of researchers um, took 157 passengers who underwent a one-day training program with the usual um, uh, customary uh, psychological program, but instead of a flight, they underwent a simulated flight. And they were actually able to show that there was a reduction in the anxiety scores before and afterwards. So there does seem to be a, value in the sim- um, in a valuable role here in the simulator uh, for passenger training too. So in summary, I think we've demonstrated that simulator has uh, certainly involved. We've looked at a bit of human physiology, gone through some of the uses of commercial aviation, and then briefly had a look at their use in aviation medicine. Thank you very much. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.